We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash lawless. Just go to Indeed.com slash lawless right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed com slash lawless terms and conditions apply need to hire you need indeed hello sunshine i'm alexi lawless and welcome to the state of the union podcast where we look at the beautiful game on and off the field through the lens of red white and blue colored glasses this pod will be talking about well the final international window is upon us we'll go through all of that uh reassessing jesus ferreira question mark uh the bling ring Polisic publication, refereeing, Burhalter, and much, much more. But first joining me, as always, my friend, my colleague, my guiding light, David Mossy, a soccer savant and a Fox soccer researcher and writer extraordinaire. Mossy, how are you doing on this? Uh, what are we recording here on this Wednesday, September 21st, 2022? And we are recording remote, remotely, so we are not in the same room. I'm at my place. You're at your place here. But um, it looks good and it sounds good, too. How are you doing, my friend? I am doing well, and we're going to be seeing a lot of each other over this international break. We're covering lots of matches. I'm excited for it. Yeah, we got all sorts. I mean, it's, it's obviously, as I mentioned in the open, it's a, it's a really interesting moment right now, especially when it comes to the international game. We're going to dive into all that. Have you watched anything uh, for the people? I'm caught up on House of the Dragon, caught up on industry, caught up on Atlanta, but uh, I'm going to talk about something different. Um, Ooh. If you listen to the opening segments of these pods in which you and I talk pop culture, you'll know that we frequently bring up true crime documentaries. Uh, We both uh, have a fascination for that genre. And my fascination began with season one of the Serial podcast, which came out eight years ago. I was enthralled. And I would argue that it was that podcast that really caused this genre to explode. I know there were some pretty good true crime docs that predated Serial, like The Staircase, But those were like random one-offs. It was the success of Syria that really prompted all these streaming services to really go all in. And we've had, you know, everything from Making a Murder to The Jinx with Robert Durst and all the rest. I've watched all of those. But I trace this phenomenon back to Serial. And so the big news this past week is that Adnan Syed was let out. Uh, A judge overturned his conviction. Uh, You might recall he had been convicted of murdering his girlfriend in high school, Haley Min. And 23 years later, he gets out. Uh, Sarah Koenig, the host of the Serial Podcast, taped a bonus episode to kind of update the story, which I listened to yesterday. And to be listening to Sarah Koenig discussing that case again with the little serious serial music in the background, uh, it was pretty mind blowing to be back in that world. Yeah, I, I too listened to it when it came out and watched the documentary, the accompanying documentary on uh, on HBO. Um, correct me if I'm wrong. The the reason for his release was on a technicality relative to giving over evidence uh, that wasn't given over to the defense, which obviously is a big is a big no no. So it still remains to be seen whether they will retry him and if ultimately he is going to be found guilty once again or if this evidence uh, or any evidence that has come to light uh, shows that somebody else ultimately did it. It's still fascinating, uh, fascinating story, right? I, I got that right, right? Yeah, although the articles I read, uh, it sounds like it's unlikely that they're going to retry him. He, he should be in the clear at this point. Okay, all right. Well, if he's truly innocent, then uh, I'm I'm happy that, there, that we don't have an innocent man behind bars. Um, two, two things that I wanted to mention. One, uh, I, I, uh, I forwarded an email to you, <laughs> was it uh, yesterday or two days ago, from my mother. For those that know, uh, my mother listens, but she also, let's be honest, she listens for you, Mossy, especially when it comes to your um, recommendations. And on your recommendation, I think I've mentioned this before, she has been knee deep uh, plowing through Better uh, Call Sal. Um, and she <laughs> she wrote a full page 
dissecting the characters and the plot. So she is completely into it. I didn't understand a word she was saying because I have not watched this thing, but um, she did want me to mention that. I know you got it. I'm glad that you two have connected and I'm glad that you have steered her in this uh, in this direction when it comes to quality television viewing. Uh, would it be appropriate for me to respond to her email, write back to her with my thoughts? Oh my God, you make her day. Are you kidding me? Because it's not like it's not like I can do it. I could. I have nothing to add to the Better Call Saul uh, discussion here. She would love nothing more than to discuss it because I'm telling you, she's in. She's into it, and I think she gave a pretty good um, description. It wasn't all glowing, you know. She had some problems with it here and there and challenges, but I think in general she does enjoy it. Uh, second thing is uh, I watched this documentary that actually just came out on Netflix about the Bling Ring. You remember the uh, Bling Ring over there? The the, the group of of uh, teenagers um, and young kids that ended up uh, robbing high profile uh, actors and uh, uh, Hollywood celebrity houses back there in, uh, in Beverly Hills. Well, there's a documentary out on it and it's, I am still like fuming. It, it is, it is the most disgusting, sad, despicable uh, group of people that have, have no self-awareness and it's just it's infuriating. And the style in which the documentary was done, it, it makes it that much worse. And yet I watched every single minute of it. And it is a it is a fascinating type of um, examination of these these vapid, ridiculous young people um, that still, I think, have no idea ultimately what they did or uh, that it was that it was so wrong anyway. It's. I don't know if that's a glowing recommendation, but it's worth your time, and I don't, I'd be interested if, if people watch it if they get the same type of reaction. Uh, anything else, my friend? That's it. All right. Like we mentioned, we are uh, heading into this international window, and look, international windows always give us content and fodder, but this one in particular, because it is the last window before the World Cup for all of these teams, they're getting their last look basically at this at this group and obviously in competitive situations before November and December in uh, in Qatar. Where do you want to start when it comes to that? Obviously, we got the uh, the U.S. playing here uh, two games, one on Friday uh, early in the morning where we are here, Mossy. So we'll be up early. Our friends over there at ESPN will be televising the uh, uh, the U.S. Germany game, uh, excuse me, U.S. Japan game. And then uh, next Tuesday, uh, the U.S. plays against Saudi Arabia and yours truly and all of us over at Fox will be televising uh, that. So we're looking forward to both of those games. Where do you want to start? Well, let's start with this uh, Japan game on Friday. And what are we looking to see from the U.S.? Um, a few things that jump out to me. Obviously, the center forward position. I'm curious to see how he's going to divvy up the minutes between Ferreira, Sargent and Pepe. Personally, the guy I'm most intrigued to watch is Sargent in these games. Hopefully mm -hmm. he gets some time. And also with Yunus Musa out, it undermines his ability to play that double pivot that he likes to play with Adams and Musa and McKinney playing forward more like a 10. I'm curious to see how he's going to configure the midfield in these games. Is he going to drop McKinney into that Musa role so he can get Aronson in there or figure something else out? So those are two things that jump out to me right away that I want to see in these games. There's, there seems to be a, a disconnect or discrepancy in terms of what Greg Berhalter wants to do. And I guess I guess this would apply to all teams that are playing. We're going to get into the Nations League and everything because there's actually a, a competitive element to some teams that are playing. But the reality is for the teams that are going to be one of the 32 teams going to Qatar, I'm 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 really interested to see how they are going to approach this window and these games. You know, Greg Berhalter has been pretty clear, especially of late that the the you know, I'm paraphrasing, but the time for experimentation is is over. However, the way that he has talked about players that are in camp and not in camp, he's also said, well, we're, you know, we're getting a look at them and we want to take another look at them. So in essence, taking a look at somebody or another look at somebody uh, that for me triggers like that's experimentation. So I'm interested to see in this 11, to your point, if is he going to approach either one of these games or both of these games as if, look, this is the first game against Wales and this is what I'm putting out there, the best possible 11 that I have for this for this opponent relative to that oral cup or is it i need to have as many tools as i possibly can and plan b's and plan c's here and so i need to throw some different looks at not just the opponent 
but our own team and see how they uh, see how they react. I don't know. I have no idea. Obviously, early in the morning on Friday, we're going to find out very quickly, at least relative to the Japan game, uh, what this is going to be. The fact that this is a neutral site uh, over there in Europe, I think that that is important and and good because it's not any type of leaning or swaying one side relative to the environment that you're in, which is the exact same type of situation that you're going to face in, uh, in in Qatar. I think that's good. I think Japan is an absolute quality team, seven times uh, at, at the World Cup, plenty of uh, talent. Most of their players are playing uh, in uh, in Europe. And I think that they look at the U.S. as an equal. And so I'm excited to see ultimately uh, how that how, how that plays out. First, I guess my question back to you is, how do you think Greg, Greg Berhalter is going to approach these games? I think he's going to try to put out, um, certainly for the Japan game, the strongest possible lineup he has at his disposal. But unfortunately, the absences due to injury of Musa, Jedi Robinson, and Timmy Wei make it that we're not going to feel like, oh, this is the lineup for Wales, you know, because there are some players absent that we all think have a very good chance of being in that starting lineup for the World Cup. Uh, but nevertheless, um, you know, I mentioned center forward. I mentioned the midfield left back is another interesting position without Jedi Robinson. It means that uh, Sam Vines or a Joe Scally is going to presumably start these games and we're going to get a look at them. And, and, you know, they're auditioning more for a backup left back role. But nevertheless, I think uh, that's important. And then goalkeeper, you know, right. when the squad was announced. I suggested that maybe Turner would start one game and then either Horvath or Johnson would start the other. You shot that down right away. You want to see Turner start both these games. He needs as many minutes as possible, given how little he's playing at club level. Yeah, I think I think you play Turner both of these games. I think right now, you know, barring and look, I, 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 I hesitate to say this because I do think that there is always going to be a spot for Stefan um, it, when it comes to Greg Berhalter. But obviously, with his injury history. You, you you can't count on him. And so, yeah, I would like to see Matt Turner play both of these games. And I don't think if there is going to be experimentation, I don't think that that's where it needs to be done. Like you, I am interested in that striker position. Ultimately, what happens also like you, I do think that of the strikers in camp and look, there's I know there's not there's not some strikers in camp that people are, are including in this discussion. But of the strikers in camp, the the one that I see that has the best chance to step in and be that guy, I think is Josh Sargent because he, he plays that position. And we're going to talk later in the pod about what that position ultimately is historically, but he plays that position in a way that I think actually harkens back to what Greg Berhalter thought that position was going to look like a long time ago, but it never really came to fruition. But whether it's, whether it's Pepe, whether it's uh Sargent or whether it's Jesus Ferrer, who we'll talk about later on in the show, you got to show here. You got to show in these in these games. And it's just waiting. It's waiting for someone to say it's mine. Doesn't mean everybody's going to agree. And there's going to be a lot of people that won't agree regardless, but it's still wide open uh, that the center back pairing, I think, is going to continue to be a question, uh, a question going forward. And, you know, the, the Musa injury, while you don't never want to see anybody injured, you know, it might offer an opportunity to see something that we like, whether that ends up being a fallback type of plan. For, uh, for, you know, for that three that we kind of have solidified in there and we haven't really seen them being injured. And again, knock on wood that none of them, none of them are. But if one of those three is not there, either because of injury or red card or something like that, eh, you got to you got to make sure that you you have something. And a lot of times we talk about this team in terms of the depth. What else, my friend? I'm curious to see Christian Pulisic. I know U.S. fans have convinced themselves that whatever his issues at Chelsea, he can just flip a switch when he's with the U.S. national team. But um, I'm curious to see. You know, he's obviously been in the news for lots of different reasons the last few days. And and uh, I'm, I want to see how he's going to come out against Japan. Well, we're going to talk about those reasons later on in the <laughs> show because, you know, off the field, Christian's doing some interesting. Actually, I, I, I do truly believe some interesting things on the field. To your point, I think a lot of people are looking for that switch to be flicked and it's sometimes it's not there or sometimes you flick it and nothing actually ignites on, on the other side. I will say, and I've, I've said this before, I think Christian Pulisic, maybe more so than anyone, there is an incredible relief and sigh um, and excitement of actually getting on that playing and going in this case, it would be to uh, to Germany and Spain to play with uh, the U S men's national team. I think a lot of players feel that, but I think Christian Pulisic, especially in this kind of moment, probably really relishes the opportunity. I think a lot of people are counting on that come November and December. 
Yeah, and as you mentioned, Japan have some names of note. Minamino, former Liverpool, who's now in Monaco. Kubo, now at Sociedad, who Stu Holden loves. He spent some time at Mallorca. Haraguchi, who's a teammate of Jordan Pifox at Union Berlin. You've got Tomiyasu from Arsenal at the back there. Yoshida. So a team that got to the round of 16 of the last World Cup had Belgium in big trove. Remember, that was one of the matches yep. of the tournament. They were 2-0 in the second half. And pissed it away, yeah. Yeah. So I, I do think this is a solid, solid test for the U.S., yeah, it's going to be uh, it's going to be fun. Um, all right. So, you know, we'll be up, uh, by the way, just to, as a reminder, that game is 830 a.m. Eastern time. So for those of us out here on the uh, the West Coast, that is an early rise. But, you know, you you sacrifice for the things that you love. And I love this team. So I'm going to get up and watch uh, what is going on. And we'll see ultimately what Greg Berhalter has. That's coming to you from Dusseldorf, uh, Germany. Immediately after that, um, my friend, we are going to tape a pod uh, with a reaction to it, but it's going to be live. You, have you ever heard of these uh, the spaces thing over there in uh, Twitter, Mossy? I've heard of it. All right. So I've, I've been doing this now a while. And those that follow me on Twitter uh, will know about the Lonely Heart Soccer Club. It's something that I've been doing. I actually really enjoy the format. It's, as I said, as I mentioned, it's live. Um, and it is a call-in type of format, your traditional type of radio show. I bring people up one at a time as opposed to kind of a, a platform um, and a stage that's that's kind of everybody on on stage that people do that with uh, with other uh, spaces that they do. I bring people up one-on-one, and it's really been interesting. We really had some really, really good conversation, but it's also an opportunity for us to you know, get into it. So I'm going to invite you because I know you're on Twitter, and I know people out there aren't necessarily on Twitter. Uh, we will attempt to record this and repopulate it and have it out there because I think some interesting stuff comes out of these discussions that we have. So that'll be immediately after the game. Did I get that correct, Mossy? I believe so. Obviously, you and uh, producer Sean Sullivan will have to walk me through all that because technology is not my strong suit. You're going to be just fine, my friend. Folks found out with our last pod. <laughs> you're going to be you're going to be just fine. All right. Uh, should we spin it? Uh, should we spin it ahead to the uh, Saudi Arabia game? Sure. All right. So as we mentioned, Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern time, 11 uh, p.m. or 11 a.m., excuse me, uh, Pacific time on FS1, Mossy, myself, uh, all of our soccer folks are going to be doing USA versus Saudi Arabia. And that will be the last game and certainly the last official game and certainly the last one that we are going to be able to see that features this uh, U.S. men's national team before the World Cup. And so I think that's going to be another important game. Saudi Arabia, another team that is qualified for the World Cup. Also an interesting team relative to their domestic league, where they all play in the domestic league. And all the different conversations that we often have with domestic talent versus foreign talent and our domestic league versus other, all that kind of stuff uh, comes uh, comes into play. But another test. And that will be coming from, uh, am I pronouncing this right, Masi? Murcia? Murcia, Spain, I think? That's uh, uh, where they're going to be playing. I believe so, yes. And, you know, who knows that that might offer us a glimpse of a, you know, potential Iranish type of team that obviously the U.S. is going to face in group phase. It might offer much more of a low block, much more of an ability for the U.S. to control the game and try to break down a resolute defense that likes to counter all those different things. But you never know. It, it's a, I think it's a it's a good test. Is it the greatest competition? No. But I think it's a team that's that's beatable. And I think it's a team that kind of mirrors some of what we were going to see in the uh, in the group phase. Yeah, they had a very strong qualifying campaign, Saudi Arabia. This uh, Salam al-Dasari is supposed to be a very good player. So, uh, yeah, it's another interesting test. Another team that's going to be at the World Cup. They're in a group with Argentina, Mexico, and Poland. So I don't see Saudi Arabia <laughs> advancing from that. Incidentally, Japan are in a group with uh, Spain, Germany, and Costa Rica. So I don't, I don't see them making out of that group either. But nevertheless, I, I think both these are solid, solid tests for the U.S. And obviously... You know, the narratives and the and the conversations around the Tuesday game against Saudi Arabia will you know, be born of that game Friday uh, against Japan. And what did Greg Berhalter do? And, you know, how much of that starting 11 do we actually see as a starting 11 and what was tested or experimented on? And more importantly, did any of it work? You know, if Josh Sargent gets in there and goes great guns and scores a goal and looks really, really good. Then you know how we you know how we roll right in uh, in American soccer, Mossy. We you know we 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 get mesmerized by a shiny thing, and it's understandable. And, and there will be 
a call to see more of him. Or if somebody underperforms, it'll be like, hey, this isn't good. Uh, this close to the World Cup. And that is a problem. I mean, even a even a kind of penned in starter like Serginho Dest. It's not as if he's starting and playing right now at AC Milan with his with his move there. I don't think that he's going anywhere. And I think he's still good enough where you just don't have anybody that's even close ultimately to take his place. But, you know, we'll have our 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 magnifying glasses out for how that performance went on Friday relative to what's going to happen, uh, happen on Tuesday. And I mentioned in the pot earlier in the week about little things that ultimately can decide your fate. And by the way, because the world cup has so much power can change your life and the little things that you do and the little things that happen on the field or happen in training or happen in the hotel all of those little things matter. And so to be a fly on the wall right now in this camp, and there's plenty of, t- of players there that know they're going to be on the plane, but not, not everybody. And so that pressure, but I would look at it more as that opportunity. How does that ultimately play out when these players get on the field, like I said, on Friday against Japan and then on Tuesday against uh, Saudi Arabia? All right, what else, Masi? Well, just one last thing. As you told us in our last pod, if anybody's playing soccer tennis with Greg Berhalter in the next few days, they, they should take that seriously because their fate could be. <laughs> hey, I could see something like, you know, Greg's a, we know Greg's a, a basketball player. And who knows? Maybe a, somebody jumps into a basketball and they play a game of horse or something like that. And many years from now, Greg Berhalter is saying, you know, I was I was on the edge as to whether to take player X and, you know, this this uh, type of thing happened. But it, it does matter. It, it does matter. And, you know, there is a lot of, there's a lot of downtime in a camp and the things that happen that you think are innocuous end up, well, first off, like the things that I should remember, I don't, but the things that I do are just random, th- <laughs> random things. And so anyway, uh, should we move on then to uh, some of the rest of CONCACAF that's, uh, that's playing? Yes. Uh, Canada in action. This is an interesting one. They're going to face World Cup host Qatar in a friendly in Austria. Canada, that dispute with the Federation is ongoing. They're still trying to negotiate what percentage of the World Cup prize money the players are going to get, what percentage of some of the sponsorship deals that the Federation has negotiated recently. So I keep wondering how that's going to affect the team. On the other hand, watching Alfonso Davies and Jonathan David play for their clubs the last few weeks, you're reminded of how much talent this Canada team has. So uh, be curious to see how they look. It worries me, Mossy, because... We know that Canada coming back for the first time in 36 years to the World Cup from a men's perspective, um, while I don't think anybody necessarily anticipated the World Cup qualifying campaign going as well as it did, it still should not be a surprise. And it worries me that Canada is coming in with drama like Canada, just in general, Canada, Canada should never have drama as relating to its national team. That's something we kind of reserve for for other teams. You know, we, we've seen it with obviously France and with uh, Argentina and plenty of uh, African nations at different times. And it's almost like it's just baked into what they do. That's not the way that I think of Canada. And, you know, I, I was doing a spaces the other day and I got a, a really interesting comment and question about Canada in that there is a real worry that all of that goodwill and all of that opportunity that has come from going back to the World Cup here is is not being squandered yet, but is is dissipating a little bit because of all the other stuff. And you don't want baggage when you are Canada going back to the World Cup, by the way, in a group, a group F that includes Belgium, Morocco and Croatia. You got to be on. So welcome back to the World Cup. But now you got to play Belgium in the first game. And if you're worried about, you know, not getting paid or the Federation didn't do this, or the Federation promised this and didn't do that. That is that is you already are under the gun. You already have problems. You don't need an extra added burden uh, burden right now. And so that that worries me from, like you said, a very talented candidate team that a lot of us have high hopes for. But it, it could be a big problem if they are coming in, like I said, weighed down by stuff that has nothing to do with kicking the ball. And their other friendly in this window is against Uruguay, which is really interesting. That's a game we'll talk about in our next pod. As for Qatar, this is wild to me. They've basically been on lockdown the last few months. They've played their last several games behind closed doors, and they've done these training camps in Spain and Austria. They've decided the best tact here is to try to eliminate all the distractions ahead of this World Cup. 
I kind of find that counterintuitive. I mean, I almost feel like you have to embrace the chaos when you're going to be a World Cup host. I mean, how do you feel about it? I, I completely agree. And obviously, I have you know two ends of the spectrum from a uh, anecdotal perspective. You know, in 1994, being part of the host nation and the host and on the host team, and then in France in in 94, and, and it's not that you don't try to shut out some of the clutter. But I, our, in our coach in 94, Bora Miltinovich was adamant that we feel the energy, that we embrace the fact that this country, our country at that point, was hosting the World Cup. And all of that energy and excitement, he looked at it as fuel, as opposed to in 1998, where Steve Sampson was, uh, he wanted us, you know, as um, as insulated and as isolated as possible. And, and it was, you know, it it. it it's not right or wrong, ultimately, but his take was, I don't want any distractions. Uh, Qatar right now with what they are doing is much more of a 98 type of uh, situation. And I'm not saying it can't work. Don't, not even, I'm not relative to what it, whether it did or didn't in 98 and, and 94, relative to 94. That's not what I'm saying here, because it can work. And isolation and, you know, we, it's called concentration around the world, right? There's, there's a reason why that's done, especially for teams that are going to be under the spotlight, which Qatar is as the host nation. But having said that, you're also, if you are so isolated, then you come back in, man, oh man, and you drop into that bubble and that brigadoon that, that is Doha, it can be it can be jarring. So I don't know. I don't know if it's going to work. This team already is up against it. But if, if I was the coach, I would go with the energy and the recognition and the ownership of, hey, this is the tournament. The world's here. Let's Let's be part of the party. Uh, Mexico, meanwhile, uh, their two games are both in the United States. They face Peru at the Rose Bowl and then Colombia at Levi. Um, big story there is Tata Martino has finally put an end to the Chicharito stuff. He said as definitively as I've heard him say, Chicharito is not going to the World Cup. Stop asking me about him. We're going with other players. Um, the four strikers in camp now are... Um, uh, Raul Jimenez, Rogelio Funes Mori, Henry Martin, and Santi Jimenez. Keep in mind, Raul Jimenez and Rogelio Funes Mori are both battling injuries. They might not play in either of these games. So it could mean a chance for Santi Jimenez, who's a player who, uh, formerly of Cruz Azul, is off to a good start with Feyenoord. And way back when we did that show at a bar for the Mexico-U.S. Uh, World Cup qualifier, the Azteca, uh, our good friend Mariano Trujillo was on that night. I was talking to him off the air about Mexico's center forward problems. And that was the, the, game, the name you kept bringing up, Santi Jimenez. He's a big fan of this kid and thinks he could be the solution there. So curious to see how much playing time he gets in these two games. But yeah, Mexico's still trying to figure things out. Yeah. And, you know, messaging is always important for coaches, right? We, we know that. And perception, both from the outside and internally. And, you know, I'm, I'm kind of glad that Tata just kind of put this to bed. There'll be still be people that believe that 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 uh, Chicharito should be there. The problem is, is that you risk putting the player and giving them incredible power as this incoming savior. If you were to do, if you were to do that, and no, no coach wants to do that. When we talk about Greg Berhalter all the time about dancing with the ones that brung him, well, Tata Martino in essence is is doing that right now. The question is, is that going to be enough? And are you hurting your team? Because you don't want to kind of suck it up and say, I'm going to do whatever it takes to get this player back in. Obviously, Tata has come to the conclusion that he's not going to do it. Is he, you know, is he cutting off his nose to spite his, his face in this situation relative specifically to uh, Chicharito? We know the Vela ship sailed long ago, but Chicharito, especially where, again, like the U.S., either through injury or just it's just hasn't ultimately been decided. I think they're still worried about who ultimately is going to lead that line and who has the, the experience to be able to do that with a guy like Chicharito kind of waiting in the wings. Uh, one last uh, game involving a CONCACAF nation to hit. Costa Rica will be away to South Korea, which means they have to contend with Hung Min Sun, who's coming off that hat trick in 13 minutes for Tottenham against Leicester. So we'll see if uh, they can slow him down. I mean, look, Costa Rica, they, they have punched above their weight before. And so whatever the, the preparation that they're doing, it's going to be it's going to it's going to have to have an effect, uh, given they have Spain, Germany and Japan in that uh, in that group. E. So um, this is a good test. This is a good test for them. And 
they're going to need it because I think that this is going to be a bridge too far for Costa Rica when it comes to the group. I'm not going out on a limb saying that. I mentioned Chicharito won't be playing for Mexico. He will be playing for the Galaxy uh, this weekend. There is an MLS game Saturday. The Galaxy are away to San Jose. The Galaxy, the last team above the playoff line in the West. Uh, this, If they can get this one, I think they put themselves in pretty good shape to make the playoffs. They do. They do. I mean, they they, they came off uh, very well last week, and they got a lot of help from other teams. But this is the game. This is the game where you start to put a little bit of distance, and this is where you kind of solidify your playoff spot. And it's all fine and well to talk about games in hand, and they pissed away a bunch of points uh, in those games in hand. And so now this one, however, I mean, this is a this is what this is their intrastate rival, right? And this is a historic rival. And the San Jose Earthquakes, which are already already looking to next year, I mean, for them to have the opportunity to not completely snuff out but to really stick in a dagger to the galaxy i think they would love nothing more and for the galaxy if you are for real and i still have my questions when it comes to this galaxy team this is a game that you should win but we've been saying that now multiple times with these games in hand and they haven't always stepped up to the plate that's it all right uh let's take a little uh, break here when we come back we'll well we'll we'll scout the rest of the us's group and as I mentioned, look at the uh, UEFA Nations League games, which are uh, part of this whole window. So don't go anywhere. All right, we're back. And, uh, you know, as we mentioned in the first segment, this window, it, it's it's really interesting to see how teams are going to approach these games that they're playing. Because, you know, for some teams like the U.S., it is all about preparation for the World Cup. But when it comes to a lot of these teams that are certainly going to be at the World Cup, they're also in the midst of this competition that is UEFA Nations League. And so there is real consequences to these uh, to these games. These are competitive games. And when you look at some of these teams, they are games that they need to win if they hope to avoid relegation in uh, in the Nations League when the, with the likes of France and Switzerland and England uh, and uh, and Wales in those groups right there. Where do you want to start, Mossy? Uh, well, we're going to check in on the U.S.'s group stage opponents at the World Cup, and two of them are European, which means they're taking part in the Nations League. England and Wales are both last in their group, eliminated from semifinal contention, fighting just to avoid relegation. Uh, in Wales's case, it would be much less of an indignity to get relegated. So their manager, Rob Page, has made it clear he's not all that concerned about uh, Nations League standings and points. Uh, he's treating this window as a chance to get his team ready for the World Cup. We've all watched Gareth Bale struggle with LASC. We're curious to see how he looks with Wales. He is in the squad. Wales away to Belgium on Thursday. That's our FS1 game. And then they're home to Poland, the second game in this window. Um, how would it make you feel if Bale looked outstanding for Wales <laughs> after the way he's played for LAFC? I mean, we've we've said all along that he might be sandbagging uh, for LAFC, <laughs> and and we've also said all along if if he isn't sandbagging and he's he, he's really bad, I kind of want him to be bad for for uh, for Wales, and and even then. I only want him to be bad for Wales when they're in that first game against the U.S. Everything else he can he can play as well as uh, well as possible. But, you know, getting back to the, you know, to the the approach that these teams that these teams are taking, you know, a a tournament, if you will, a league that you will, a competition that was specifically made to foster competition with the groups and the different levels and obviously the promotion relegation aspect of it has now been torpedoed because of the World Cup coming in November and December, so much so that coaches are more than happy to explain that they're not going to risk anything that would put the most important thing that is coming this year for a national team, if you one of the 32 teams that qualify, which is ultimately uh, the World Cup. And so it's just, it's a strange, strange situation to be in. But I also think there is an element whether it's Wales or anybody else, it goes back to what we said about the U.S., where you also can't afford to waste these two games to see what you want. Now, if you're Wales, you might say, look, we are what we are. We know what our 11 ultimately is going to be if everybody's healthy. So we don't necessarily need to have everybody else out there, especially risking injury. But I mean, every time that Gareth Bale steps on the field in training, theoretically, he's risking injury. Somebody could kick him or he could 
you know, trip over the sidewalk. So I don't necessarily think that this is otherwise you just bubble wrap them until November uh, and off you go, which, you know, who knows? Maybe Wales is thinking about doing that. Uh, England, meanwhile, uh, they face Italy at the San Siro and then Germany at Wembley. Uh, Harry Kane is creeping up on uh, Wayne Rooney's uh, England scoring record. He's three goals behind. I expect him to break that record on November 25th by gliding past Aaron Long and slotting it uh, past Matt Turner. Um, but um, a lot of question marks elsewhere. England have been pretty shocking in this Nations League so far. I'm wondering about the center back pairing, you know, what combination of Maguire, Eric Dyer's had a pretty good start to the season, John Stones, Tamari playing well with AC Milan, but all seems a bit unsettled back there. In the midfield, you have Jude Bellingham emerging, Declan Rice, but still, I, I'm not sure exactly who's going to start there. So Gareth Southgate does have some things to sort out here. You know, I, you know, oftentimes I say form is fallacy, but do you think that Maguire ultimately is going to be starting that first game uh, of the World Cup come uh, come November, December? As we know, England, that first game will be facing Iran, the U.S. facing Wales. I don't think so. I think uh, his struggles and inactivity with Manchester United are finally going to compel Southgate to drop him and figure out a different pairing. Well, I mean, look, if if Gareth Southgate is using this um, also as an opportunity to get tune-ups for the World Cup. I mean, these are two great games, by the way. And I know it's just the luck of the, the draw in terms of what Nations League is. And in that sense, they benefit because they could be playing other teams right now. But to play Italy away and then Germ- Germany's away too, right? Uh, uh, no, they're home to Germany. They're home to Germany. But either way, you're playing two of the... Two of the great teams, obviously a rematch uh, from Euros when it comes to uh, the game against Italy. So as far as your final two games, I don't think that you could ask for anything more if you're Gareth Southgate. Uh, And finally, Iran will take on Uruguay and then Senegal next week. Uh, Big story with Iran is that Carlos Queiroz is back. Uh, This is wild to me because the previous coach, Stokic, qualified them for the World Cup and had a pretty good record. I'm, I'm still struggling to understand why he was let go. And they bring Carlos Queiroz back, who had a lengthy, successful spell with Iran, uh, coached him in the last two World Cups, but has been pretty terrible since then uh, with uh, Colombia and Egypt in this cycle. But he lands on his feet because after failing to qualify two other countries for the World Cup, he himself will be going to Qatar. Well, we all know that uh, the politics of soccer are ever present for all nations and at all times. Right. And so the Federation leadership, in this case, it would be the Federation leadership in Iran uh, always has a say. And, you know, with Kirosh's experience, but man, oh man, can you imagine if you qualify a team to a world cup um, and you don't get that payoff? That is just as a coach, that is just brutal. Not just, not just because you it's something that you put on your resume. I'm not denying the value of that, but just to kind of finish it off. It's just, ah, I just, I can't, I can't imagine. Now there's some coaches just say it's just too much trouble. I don't want to deal with it. That's a different thing, but to be replaced after you actually qualify. And it's not like this is Brazil or Argentina where it's just such an expectation given the incredible talent that they have, you you know, and, and I'm not saying that Iran hasn't qualified in the past, but, Oh, man. Brutal. All right. What else? And just to get his name right, it's Dragan Skocic, uh, who is unceremoniously let go and replaced by Carlos Queiroz, uh, who will be coaching them at the World Cup. Um, all right. Should we transition to uh, Nations League, uh, some games involving teams not in the U.S. and World Cup group? Sure. Uh, defending world champion France uh, will take on Austria, uh, who are managed by Ralph Rangnick, you might recall. Uh, all sorts of stuff going on with France. Um, Kylian Mbappe is involved in this feud with the Federation over the player's image rights. He refused to take part in a photo shoot um, a few days ago, so they have that going on. They also have this crazy Paul Pogba story involving family members and extortion and witchcraft and all the rest. Um, and they have loads of injuries Guys like Karim Benzema and Golo Kante, Kingsley Coman, Hugo Lloris, Lucas Hernandez, all out um, for this window. So it's it's not a great ramp up to the World Cup. I will say two players that are in the squad that I'm excited to get a look at in this window are Usman Dembele, who's made a terrific start to the season with Barcelona. 
Uh, if their front three at the World Cup is Mbappe, Benzema, and Dembele, that could be absolutely scary. And then a player who I sang his praises in our last podcast, I said he's been an upgrade over Casemiro at Real Madrid, is Chouamini, who I think is a wonderful, wonderful young player. It's going to be very tough to keep off the field. I, I expect him to be starting in the midfield for France. Yeah, look, I'm not crying for France. Uh, they're going to be just fine, even with the trials and tribulations. And, you know, the thing about the image rights why is this even a thing? It's it should be decided. I mean, it sh- it's it's contractual or it isn't. Either you're su- you know you're supposed to take the pictures and the video or whatever for the federation, and it's all part of the deal that you that you do, or it's not. Look, I'm all for players getting as many rights as possible, but you also have to live up to whatever the existing agreement. And when I was rattling off the injured players, I didn't even mention Paul Pog, but he's another one who might miss the World Cup altogether. He's fighting to get back in time, so. Yeah, so all of a sudden, some question marks with France. But as you said, they're, they're not lacking for talent. Their second game in this window is away to Denmark. That's a, a rematch of a World Cup group game. No, Nils Stu Holden, who called it, said that was one of his uh, least favorite games of the last World Cup. Um, but uh, no, nah, it should be an interesting one. France, we should mention, already eliminated. They're the defending Nations League champions, but already eliminated from semifinal contention. They're also fighting just to avoid relegation. Yeah, they're at uh, two points. Austria ahead of them at four points right now. And as you mentioned, Denmark uh, leading that group. Um, Other teams uh, out there you want to talk about? Uh, Yes, uh, we've got Poland taking on the Netherlands. Uh, That could be, assuming they both start, uh, Robert Lewandowski against Virgil van Dijk, which is kind of a tasty matchup there. Um, Also, a matchup of Barcelona Strikers, Robert Lewandowski in one end, Memphis Depay, who's essentially Lewandowski's backup now, starting up front for the Netherlands. He has an incredible international scoring record, Memphis Depay. He really takes his game to another level when he plays for the Dutch. So uh, that should be a fun one as well. Yeah, I mean, like, uh, what was it? Uh, over 40 goals in, in quasi 80 games or something like that for uh, for the Netherlands. I mean, the, the dude's the dude's amazing. And that he that he's playing for a team where he can't he can't even start albeit, you know, backing up one of the great uh, strikers in Lewandowski right now. So, all right, well, we'll, uh, we'll check out that one. And then uh, what else? Germany? Want to go over to Germany? Yeah, so they face Hungary, who are the surprise leaders in uh, their Nations League. It reminds me a little bit of Costa Rica at the 2014 uh, World Cup when they were in a group with Italy, England, and Uruguay, and they were the surprise winners. Hungary is in a group here with Germany, Italy, and England. And lo and behold, it's, it's Hungary entering the home stretch here in first place. They'll try to stay that way. Uh, Germany, obviously, we had the Marco Royce injury uh, with Dortmund this past weekend, so he's out. Uh, also, Neuer and Goretzka tested positive for COVID, so they're out. Uh, a couple of players I got my eye on for them is this young midfielder. I've sung his praise on this podcast, Musiala, who plays for Bayern Munich, very good. And then Timo Werner's uh, had a good start to the season with Leipzig. Uh, we'll see if he can carry that over uh, to the national team. If and if Hungary win, uh, they go into uh, the what the final, the semifinal. Uh, yeah, it'd be semifinal. And they, of course, have in their squad MLS MVP candidate Daniel Gazdag. Oh, that's right. That's right. Yeah, I'll uh, you know I'll be giving you some more MVP talk in the in the next couple of weeks here. Um, Spain, Switzerland. Should we go to there? Yeah, um, Spain playing very well. This is, by the way, we talk about this juggling of preparing for the World Cup versus this being a competition. This group, Portugal and Spain, are battling for first place. Portugal hosts Spain in the last match day next week. And I think that game would have a lot of juice. I think there's a real rivalry there between those two countries. So I don't yeah. think they're going to look at it as, well. Wow, this is just to get ready for the World Cup. I think they would actually take very seriously the opportunity to, you know, one-up each other there in advance of the Nations League semis. Uh, Portugal won the inaugural edition of the Nations League back in 2019. Yeah, uh, Ronaldo, by the way, recently announced that uh, this World Cup is not definitely going to be his last major international tournament. He wants to play at Euro 2024 in Germany, which is the tournament we're covering as well at Fox. So that, that would be pretty interesting. That would be great. And I wouldn't put it past him. I, I wonder if you asked the 32 coaches if they would rather in this window with these two games have, as we see with, like you mentioned, Switzerland and Spain and Portugal, have actual competitive games relative to the Nations League, or would they rather do what other teams are doing where they're playing friendly games? And because I, I don't know, I mean, I think I think the competitive side of the Nations League is an advantage for these for these teams and maybe for the coaches in terms of the assessment of uh, of their teams. Maybe it's not. I don't know. And of course, anytime Spain plays, it's yeah. a chance to watch some other wonderful young midfielders, Pedri and Gavi, 
Uh, I think their starting midfield at the World Cup is going to be the Barcelona trio of Busquets, Pedri, and Gabi. So we'll see if uh, how they line up uh, for these games. They play home to Switzerland and then away to Portugal. Um, Belgium uh, will take on the Netherlands. Uh, that's a bit of a revenge game for Belgium. You might recall the Dutch hammered uh, them 4-1 uh, in the opening match day. So uh, no Lukaku, though. He's injured. And we, as you've pointed out on TV many times, that's a different team without Lukaku. Yeah, yeah. But this is also still an incredible collection when it comes to Belgium. And if Belgium just can't play without Lukaku, then maybe they're not as golden as we thought they were. But uh, yeah. All right. Denmark, France. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, we mentioned that a moment ago. That's a rematch from uh, 2018 oh, yeah, World Cup group game. A yeah. um, couple of uh, uh, games involving non-European teams we want to hit. Argentina are playing uh, both their games in this window here in the United States. They take on Honduras and Miami and then um, Jamaica in New York. Uh, I will say, surprised they couldn't line up better opponents in this. Uh, no, I, I was just going to say that, right? <laughs> I, just, I mean, look, with all due respect to our friends from Honduras and Jamaica, I mean, this is this is Argentina, but 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 the other side of me says, well, this is Argentina, so they can get opponents. It's not as if people don't want to play against Argentina. So this was obviously a strategic play by them to play these uh, these two teams. Yeah, remember there was a Brazil Argentina um, World Cup qualifier that was stopped right. after five minutes because a Brazilian health official ran on the field. Remember that whole mission, guys? <laughs> yeah, um, that was crazy. FIFA was insisting that that game had to be replayed, and it was going to be replayed in this window. And both Brazil and Argentina were, were emphatic that they did not want to replay that game. They thought that would be a poor use of these dates, that they'd rather schedule friendlies against other teams. That, you know, And so you look at that and you think, well, Argentina are playing Honduras and Jamaica. Might they not have been better off playing Brazil? Right. <laughs> they might have been a better preparation for the World Cup, but this is the way they chose to go. Uh, if nothing else, they're going to presumably win both these games and they're going to keep creeping up on the record. They're unbeaten in 33 going into this window. The international record is 37 by Italy. Uh, so Argentina, if they were to avoid defeat in these two games, that would take it to 35 and then go to the World Cup. They'd have a chance to break that record in their final group game. So, uh, wow. Um, well, you mentioned uh, you mentioned Brazil over there. What do your friends got planned for this window? Yeah, so Brazil uh, have Cameroon in their World Cup group. So they wanted to face some African opposition. So they faced two in this window, Ghana first and then Tunisia. Um, and yeah, the uh, uh, the lineup that Globo is saying Brazil are going to play is actually quite attacking. It's a front four of Vinicius on the left, Rafinha on the right, and then a front two of Neymar and Richarlison. And then sitting will be Casemiro and Lucas Paqueta, uh, that is quite an adventurous lineup for Chichi. So I'm curious to see how it looks. Um, and yeah, so we'll see uh, this match being played in Paris. Uh, we'll see how Brazil look against uh, another team that's headed to the World Cup in Ghana, who are in a group with Portugal, Uruguay, and South Korea. Well, it's interesting how they're they're focused on the African nations. Uh, their group G, Brazil, Serbia, Switzerland, and Cameroon as a reminder. So I'm, I'm not saying that they're they're scared of African competition, but using both of these games they just might feel like maybe they're more comfortable relative to the games against Serbia and Switzerland, which would be their first two games. Right. All right. Uh, anything else, Mossy? That's it. All right. Let's take another quick break. And when we come back, it's time for ask Alexi. Don't go anywhere. All right, we're back and it's time for Ask Alexi. Use that hashtag Ask Alexi and out there on the uh, social media platforms and uh, you ask us questions, comments, concerns out there. Or you call in at 657-549-2297. That's 657-549-2297 on the State of the Union podcast hotline. We're getting a lot of calls, Mossy. It's wonderful. I love the people that are calling in. What we did today was I think we took a voicemail from the hotline. We also took a question from Twitter, and then we've also added something. I mentioned earlier in the show uh, the Spaces phenomenon and uh, the Lonely Heart Soccer Club that I've been doing over there, and that we are going to, after the game on Friday with the U.S.-Japan game, immediately after that game, Mossy and I will be on Spaces discussing what we saw. Well, I did a Spaces, as I said, a couple days ago, and there was a really good question. And so I decided to take... Uh, one of those questions and actually include this. The first one, I think, is a, is a voicemail, right, Mossy? Correct. Let's take a listen. Hi, this is Eric from Northern Virginia. Uh, let me start off with, I think PFOC should be part of this camp. But given that he's not, Burhalter stressed a lot that there were three 
number nines he was bringing in. Do we think there's going to be four in Qatar, or is three the number he's going to bring? Thanks. All right. Interesting question there from Eric uh, over there in Virginia. I don't think that there's going to be four strikers. And and listening to Greg Berhalter, what was it, a month ago, kind of doing a round of press where he the, the question was posed to him even of how many player uh, how many strikers he was going to bring into this camp that is upon us right now i mean he scoffed at the suggestion of bringing in all six of them uh i don't yeah i i think because because there is i mean it's because there is no real um striker now in the in the way that we talk about strikers, I don't think that he's going to bring four. Mossy, you you think that Greg Berhalter would consider bringing four? And if that's the case, then you have the three that are in camp now, and then PFOC. I think if PFOC actually goes, it will be in place of one of those three. I agree. Four seems like overkill. So I think well, I, I think Fedeta is a lock. So it would be PFOC trying to overtake Pepe or Sargent on the final list. But but again, we, we we it comes right back to if that is truly the case, then why the hell is Peacock not in this camp? And one more player there actually vying for that potential, you know, three of four places uh, just makes it, it. I don't understand it. Which 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 leads me back to saying, well, maybe Greg Berhalter ultimately is not even looking at, at PFOC, which I have a sneaking, a sneaking suspicion is the case. But yeah, I don't think that he's bringing uh, uh, even close to even considering to bringing four strikers uh, to the World Cup. Um, okay, the next question, as I mentioned, we took off Twitter spaces and our friend uh, over there, at, Sam over there at Yank Report had this to say. I listened to your interview with Jesus Ferreira um, on your podcast. Um, and I came away with it thinking that you aren't completely bought in, that mm-hmm. Mossy's not completely bought in. And I, I do wonder a lot about how we think about players, about what things uh, make us believe in the player and, and otherwise. And I wonder whenever it comes to Jesus Ferreira, whenever we think about like goal scorers and, and the type of personalities that come with goal scorers, and we think about guys like Zlatan Ibrahimovic and uh, Erling Holland. Uh, you know, I, the other day I saw an interview with Erling Holland where someone was criticizing him for not getting a lot of touches in the game. And he said his ideal game would be getting five touches and scoring five goals. <laughs> yeah. so I, I know yeah. one of your favorite strikers is going to be Eric Wanalda. And, and anybody that knows anything about Eric Wanalda knows the type of personality that he is. Uh, you know, Brian McBride, you look at him with that chiseled jaw, you know, and that, that mentality mm-hmm. that has him break his face in order to score goals. And then you look at somebody like Jesus Ferreira, and you know, I remember you asked him specifically, uh, sell us on you being the starter for the national team. And he was, I mean, his answer was just so wishy-washy. It didn't come with any of that bravado that Erling Holland said, five touches, five goals, or anything Zlatan's ever done, or anything like that. How yeah. much of his personality, the way that he carries himself, sort of his body language, uh, impact our opinion on him? relative to what he's actually doing on the field, which is remarkable. All right. Uh, well, we wanted to let that thing play out because it, it also gives you an idea of the interaction and the discussion that's had on these uh, on these Twitter spaces, if you're not on Twitter or if you just haven't uh, you know, partaken in any of these Twitter spaces. But Sam Stokes over there at uh, Yank Report, uh, by the way, a great follow uh, and wonderful content producer and really interesting and thoughtful in, in the way that he discusses and thinks about uh, the game. And this is another example of a, you know, a really good, not just question, but comment about the way that we are looking at Jesus Ferreira. And I, I, w- I will raise my hand in that, you know, my my doubts and concerns and criticisms um, that I've made, you know, very clear over the last few years, they're not completely, they are not completely gone away, but I am reassessing the way that I look at Jesus Ferreira. And part of me feels that we may not have done him justice. And we may have given him a bum rap when it comes to what he is. It is, it is understandable. Because what he is, is nothing like we have seen before for the national team. And the tradition, and Sam mentioned it on the call, of, 
you know, Winalda and McBride and Josie Altador and those types of number nines, they exist. And he breaks that mold completely. And in doing so, I think he, not intentionally, but he just invites some skepticism and some some concern. He plays the position, as we know, very differently. <clears throat> he is also, also, as Sam mentioned, not a big character. He's not a big personality. Now, nobody is is Latan. We understand that. But you you know, it's it's not that he's a complete shrinking violet, but he's still a young player. He's been given this opportunity. He rarely says anything you know, entertaining or interesting necessarily or provocative. And maybe that's by design. But I think that Sam and others and, and even me are kind of hoping that there is something there is something more. So I, I, I get I get what he is saying. I am willing to give Jesus much more of a benefit of the doubt going forward, um, even though what was, I think, going to be plan B is now plan A for this U.S. men's national team. And I am quietly cautious that Jesus Ferreira, given what I have seen so far and how how far he has progressed, is actually going to come good for this national team. Maybe not in the way that we anticipated or maybe even not in the way that everybody wants it, wants him to. But I think if he ultimately is the starter, I'm much more confident than I was even a short time ago. And so maybe whether it's Sam or others, I'm just being turned in a different direction when it comes to and maybe I'm just saying, hey. This is as good as it gets. And so I'm going to get on board, even though it, it's not the ideal. What do you think of uh, of that, of his take in terms of how we have characterized and looked at and framed Jesus Ferrer? Uh, I think despite his uh, goal scoring in MLS this season, there still is this perception that at the highest level internationally, if you're playing Jesus Ferrer up there, um, you're sacrificing yep. traditional center forward stuff. He, he is that quote unquote false nine. And some people are uncomfortable with that. They want that traditional guy up there who's, you know, going to soar in the air and score headed goals and, and, and that kind of stuff. And so I still think that that is perceived to be the knock against Jesus. All right. Uh, I think we got a, tw- a Twitter question too, right? Mossy? Yes. Uh, Mark Redman says uh, America is facing referee shortages across all sports. Why? Because most people don't want to be yelled at by parents and coaches over a kid's game. Uh, okay, so it's kind of a question comment there. And I was asked this a couple of days ago. And Mark, you're you're absolutely right. It doesn't matter what level. Um, it doesn't matter where the uh, the lack of of referees, let alone quality referees out there is alarming and it hurts the game. Um, you are absolutely right in that. Many don't want to be subjected to, you know, the verbal abuse, let alone the possible physical abuse that seems to happen on a consistent basis. And this is not just in soccer. This is in a lot of youth uh, sports out there. And it's, you know, it's a it's a unfortunately a an expected but still horrible type of phenomenon that happens. Um, I will bet that ninety nine percent of those who hurl sideline insults and abuse at referees, let alone any type of horrible physical altercation that happens, uh, I bet you they will they will have never refereed. But I also think that, you know, it, to, to answer your question or your comment here, if from a young age, youth, youth sports, and in, in this case, youth soccer development required players to referee, it might produce a generation of players and parents, parents, by the way, and coaches that have a much better understanding, a much better perspective, and ultimately a much better respect for the role. Now that requires some, you know, some change because you are now forcing and mandating that as part of your curriculum as a young player, it is it is refereeing. So I don't know if that's ultimately going to do, but, but by the way, you know, I, I started refereeing when I was a kid, okay? It wasn't all because of the love of the game. You know, there was a practical reality where I got paid and that was a good way to make some money out there. But I learned a tremendous amount. Yes, I got yelled at. And yes, at times it wasn't comfortable. And just because people are refereeing, okay, doesn't mean that humans on the sideline can't be passionate and they can't be angry and animated. And even at times just be ridiculous because that's what sports is, right? Referees recognize that. They accept that. 
I think even even they enjoy the heat sometimes that comes with the role. But the temperature of that heat, Mossy, that can change if and when you walk in the shoes of a referee. And so at a young age, mandating that they do walk in that shoes, I think, can change some of that heat, uh, that heat going uh, for, forward. So, I mean, I did it as a kid. I've done it as, as an adult. It has changed the way that I think about refereeing. It's also made me better in terms of the job that I do uh, do right now. But until it's actually implemented from a young age, we're not going to change, you know, the way that the the calls are viewed and the way that the role ultimately is viewed. All right, that's it. Okay, well, thank you. Thank you for your questions. Like I said, whether it's, you know, through Twitter and the Ask Alexi or all the different social media platforms that we have out there, by the way, our uh, our handle out there is SOTU with Alexi or our State of the Union podcast uh, hotline, again, 657-549-2297 or in these spaces that we are now having, as I mentioned, Mossy and I are going to have one immediately after that Japan game on uh, Friday. So Mossy will be initiated into the spaces of uh, Twitter and will be there to answer your question. I will say, Mossy, having done these now for a couple of years, a lot of people do ask me, when are we going to get Mossy? Well, your wish is my command. You will get David Mossy on a Twitter spaces this uh, Friday. All right, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, it's the end of our show. And at the end of each and every show, I give you my one for the road. Don't go anywhere. We're back and it's the end of our show here. And at the end of each and every show, I give you my one for the road. Um, Mossy, I don't know if you heard this story, but uh, our young friend, uh, Christian Pulisic, Captain America over there uh, for uh, the U.S. men's national team and uh, for Chelsea as, as of now, is coming out with a book. Evidently in October, Christian Pulisic will be releasing a book. I'm assuming it's a biography relative to, you know, the interesting, albeit short life that he has. And this news has been met by different people in in different ways. Uh, There are people that, you know, could not be bothered or care about it. And there's others that are really kind of riled up that Christian Pulisic would decide to do this. Now, anybody putting out a book recognizes that you have to, you know, generate some talk about your book. And one of the ways that you do that is putting out ahead of time uh, you know, samples and uh, stories out there, which is what Christian Pulisic and I'm assuming his publisher contrived to do here and come to find out that part of this book will be a, um, you know, some drama and some dirt relative to his now former manager, Thomas Tuchel. And he goes through how he was promised that he was going to play. And then that was taken back. Now that he has had a prickly relationship with Thomas Huckel should be a surprise to no one out there um, that he is putting it in a book. I think there is a surprise to some that this is happening. Keep in mind, uh, this is Christian Pulisic, okay? This is not Zlatan Ibrahimovic, okay? This is not Erlen Holland. This is not Diego Maradona. This is Christian Pulisic. I will say this about Christian Pulisic uh, and this, uh, you know, this book coming out. Christian Pulisic coming out with a book, as I said, in October that dishes dirt on his former Chelsea manager uh, or anything else for that matter. It may be petty. It may be self-serving. It may be entitled. It may be misguided and it may be tone deaf. But I'm telling you right now, I love it. Kudos. Kudos to Christian Pulisic for, as I mentioned before, playing the game you know, and generating publicity for his book and any endeavor that you are putting out, you want to do that. But also kudos to Christian Pulisic for showing some personality, for showing some character, for showing some something interesting. This is Christian Pulisic, some gumption. This is Christian Pulisic, who we know is very bland. Maybe it's by design, maybe it's not. And in doing something like this, that has people scratching their head and people up in arms and people clutching pearls as to how they could do this. A lot of Chelsea fans are angry and just fed up with Christian Pulisic. I say good for him. All right. I don't think it's going to change ultimately who he is as a, uh, as a soccer player, but this is actually something interesting. This is actually something entertaining. And as I mentioned, this is something that provides layers for a Christian Pulisic who has been very one dimensional through his career in terms of what he has put out uh, put out publicly. Now, is this going to be a tell-all and it's going to be all sorted details? I, I doubt it. And 
Is he 20 at 24 years old? Has he done enough to put out a book? It's not for me to say or anybody to say. I hope he's got a whole lot more life to live and incredible stories to have. So maybe this is only the first of many books that he puts out, but good for him. I like that. I like that he is being himself. I like that he is kind of stepping out of that shell that he has created as to who he is. I have no problem with it. If you're a Chelsea fan and you have a problem with it, then I, I suggest you have bigger problems uh, out there. He's going to be fine whether he continues with with, uh, with Chelsea uh, or not. And this book isn't going to change his, sta- his status or the way people view him one way or the other. Big question will be is ultimately how many people read it? And are there any more stories out there? that pique our interest. Because ultimately, if you're putting out a book, you want people to buy it. You want people to read it. And therefore, the stories that you tell uh, and the story that you tell in that book ultimately has to be interesting. And so far, even though we haven't seen the book, he's piqued our interest. Mission accomplished. Check of that box. And in doing so, he's made himself more more interesting than he was before. And that in and of itself, I think, is progress. Uh, Mossy, anything about this or anything else? Well, you say now former coach Thomas Tuchel, he had no idea when he was writing the book that Tuchel was going to get fired. What if this book had come out and Tuchel was still his coach? Do you think it would have been an issue then? Probably. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I mean, look, I... I I think about putting myself in a position like that, either as the the writer in this case uh, of the book or as the coach. I mean, there's part of me that as a coach, I would look at a player and say, man, you got the balls to do something like that. And there's, and like I said, there's part of me who like say, eh, that's, that's kind of good. Maybe, you know, I can, I can see myself doing something like that. Very quickly, my favorite soccer memoir story, uh, Roy Keane famously had this feud with Alf Inge Holland, who is Erlen Holland's father. Mm-hmm. And he injured him in a game. And a year or two later, he put out an autobiography in which he more or less admitted that he injured him intentionally and he got himself suspended for it, which is mind blowing that after the fact, based on what you put in a book, they, right? they went back and suspended him. Oh, my God. Oh, I love it. We need more. We need more books. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, you know, Christian Pulisic, there's going to be a curiosity about him because he has been kind of guarded. And so who, who knows? Maybe this is a whole new side and an opening up of what Christian Pulisic is. All right. Uh, Again, a reminder, myself and David Mossy will be on uh, Twitter spaces and the Lonely Heart Soccer Club immediately after the Japan U.S. game happening uh, this Friday morning. If you're here in the the United States, we'll all be getting up early and watching that game and uh, we will react immediately after. So you can find us over there on uh, on spaces on Twitter, whether you're on Twitter or not, you can actually uh, you can actually find it and you can listen to us. You can jump on. You can participate, you can ask questions, uh, and you can hear you know, the, my wonderful friend David Mossy for the first time experience what Twitter Spaces is. Continue to write and to review and to rate and do all the different things. We're coming to you twice a week here at the uh, State of the Union uh, podcast. Again, that hotline number, 657-549-2297, or ask Alexa, use that hashtag out there on all the different platforms that we have. Uh, we will talk again next week. At some point, we'll be back in the studio, and I will be back with my friend across uh, the uh, the desk over there. But they are making it better for us. So this is a step back in order to go two steps forward. It's going to be glorious. All right. Until then, and as always, size the day. <laughs>